Unmentionable contains depictions of domestic violence, sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and pornography. This podcast is intended for ages 13 and older. We recommend parents listen through before or alongside their child. Previously on Unmentionable. All of a sudden, I start showing up on these sets, and I hadn't really paid my dues, and I was, you know, the new guy. There was some frustration there. What made things dark for me was fighting for normalcy. I was dating this girl, and we were going to do a scene. It was me, her, and then another guy. And I was like, I can't do this. And I walked off set. Like, why does this bother me? Mentally, I was spiraling out of control. After that, I became like pretty insecure. It felt like I had lost like all control. And all of a sudden, you're at the gym working out with a guy that just had sex with your wife and pretending like it's not a big deal. We broke up. I just like hated what I was doing. You see the progression of people dying. Randomly, you hear about another person committed suicide. I was just so tired of it. I believed at the time, well, there's nothing else I could do. And I would think, what if I just jumped off this building? Have you ever pursued a goal you believed would be your ultimate validation, embedding a sense of achievement within you? This goal wasn't about reaching a milestone. It was about fulfilling those deep-seated ambitions. But what if upon reaching this peak, you don't find the euphoria you expected, but a sense of emptiness? The journey was supposed to end in a moment of triumphant self-realization, but instead of fulfillment, you're met with a jarring disappointment that throws into question the value of your pursuit. This disappointment's not about failing. It's about the realization that the achievement lacks the significance you imagined. It's a harsh awakening that the external validation you chased might leave you feeling more lost than ever. This moment forces a painful reevaluation of what truly matters. I'm your host, Lee Shelton, and this is Unmentionable, a journey through the life of a prodigal porn star and a look behind the curtain of a $100 billion industry. Chapter 5, Male Performer of the Year. Almost every aspect of the porn industry is a shadow of something in the real world in an attempt to legitimize itself. From the award shows to the viewing platforms and even the sex you see on the screen, Everything is a counterfeit version of something that already exists. There's a ton of different companies like give out awards, but like the two like big ones are XBiz and AVN. XBiz actually is in LA and then AVN is generally in Vegas. But like those are the two big ones. And it's like if if you get nominated for that, like, you know, you get a write-up for it and there's either the potential that you're going to win or like they want to interview you or you probably won something else even if you didn't win that. But um, yeah, so performer of the year is um, your peers in the studio voted that you were the best. One day in 2011, he found out that he was nominated for male performer of the year, the most prestigious award in the porn industry a man can win. And now 
it's time for Male Performer of the Year. Male Performer of the Year. Nominees for Best Male Performer of the Year are... Award shows are a cornerstone of the Hollywood establishment. If you spend any time watching the mainstream award shows, you're well acquainted with the way things work. Nominees are announced in advance for each category. The guests arrive and pose for the press at the red carpet. And once things kick off, the hosts list the nominees and then announce the winner for each category. And if a notable figure has passed away, it's not uncommon to see an in-memory-of segment to honor the careers of those who've made a mark on their world. Modeled closely after the Oscars, both the AVN and the XBiz Awards follow that structure to a T. They even have household names kicking things off with a highly produced set. Kanye West, Cardi B, Diplo, and Iggy Azalea all made recent appearances. And the categories? Well, there's more than 90 of them. And they include names like Most Outrageous Sex Scene, Best Screenplay, Best Virtual Reality Sex Scene, Clever Title of the Year, and Favorite Camming Couple. AVN has hosted an award ceremony like this since 1984. And as we talked about in Chapter 3, it expanded into a conference in 1998 when the first AVN Expo gave fans a chance to interact with the big names. This attempt to legitimize itself has been 40 years in the making, all while creating its own counterfeit identity. But it's not just the award shows. It's through parodies as well. Taking whatever's popular at the moment, doing some scene-by-scene remakes, and then finding a way to work in a handful of sex scenes. And once those parodies are filmed and edited, they're distributed on platforms that seem oddly familiar. On Pornhub, just like on YouTube, there's a video player front and center. The option to like, comment, and share are grouped next to the description and channel name. And if you're curious about what the rest of the world has to say about the video you just watched, the comment section is right below the description. Just like YouTube, there's an algorithm that uses your viewing history and behavior on the site to create a taste profile that determines what gets suggested. There's an engineering team behind all that code making sure that just one more video gets clicked on, and then another one, and then another one. Once you're deep enough into it and start getting tired of the ads and the low-quality video, you can pay for Pornhub Premium, which enables a no-ad experience, 4K video quality, an advanced search engine, and an entire library of content that was previously inaccessible. While these platforms are built in a similar way, the content is vastly different. YouTube has a lot of content variety. Cats playing keyboards, how to change a tire, people giving away an absurd amount of money to strangers. Pornhub's content is singularly focused. The variety is in how the sex is portrayed, but it's all sex. For performers who want to monetize their content outside of Pornhub and build an audience, OnlyFans is a popular choice. This is Jess. She fell in love with Mike. We've been married for four years. Yeah. We've been together for, we're into our 10th year. For a living, we create adult content. We post predominantly on OnlyFans. When lockdown hit, I suggested to Jess that would she be interested in doing this? And that wasn't really much hesitation at all, no, was there? Like, yes, let's go. <laughs> we filmed a video, uploaded it, and it just went crazy, didn't it? Literally from like the get-go, really. We have two children, one of seven and one of 11. Yeah. With our oldest, we've sat down and spoke to her about it. In many ways, it's closely modeled after Patreon. 
Supporters on Patreon contribute to creators across various genres, from podcasters to illustrators. The tiers often unlock exclusive content. People love to support their favorite creators and build community. Like Patreon, OnlyFans is where audience members can support their favorite performers. It's a subscription-based model with tiers to unlock more content. Depending on what tier they choose from, they receive access to more frequently posted content that's less filtered and more personalized. In fact, the highest tiers often offer content that's tailor-made for individuals. And while OnlyFans does prove profitable for some creators, reports from the end of 2023 show that the median account made just under $180 a month. Ethical porn is a term used to describe the type of pornography common to sites like OnlyFans that take a more direct-to-consumer approach. Many people advocate for ethical porn, claiming it ensures performers' consent, equitable compensation, and satisfaction. I would say that there is still no way to ever know the story of the person behind the camera. And so someone might have seen Josh in a film and been like, well, he's over 18, he's, he looks like he's consented, it looks all above board, it looks ethical. Like, them watching, like, Josh, um, they have no idea about the real man and the real story and the real pain going on in his heart and how this very industry and being involved in that is actually destroying his life. The consumer creates a demand and the, the sad reality is that there actually, there actually isn't a, a demand for truly ethical sex. Like webcam girls that we hear from, even OnlyFans content creators we hear from, someone literally three days ago messaged us saying, I'm a we I do webcam and I'm, con I'm consistently asked to do age play things, like pretend that I'm like underage, like a nine-year-old girl. But their boundaries are consistently being pushed out to do more. The truth is that this is a, a broken world and there's always a broken story and background. Like the girls who do porn, there's dysfunction and there's unhealthy mindsets about themselves, about their bodies. There's so much um, connections with child abuse. But I just think, I like the term ethical porn and it acknowledges that the majority of this industry is very unethical but at the same time I think it's an oxymoron and ultimately you can never really know if someone is doing this fully willingly okay. and then the impact on consumers so even a 12 year old boy who's watching what might be the most ethical porn scene that's still causing harm to his brain and we've got to talk about the harm to the consumer too so is that ethical to for him to be exposed to that when it's creating then an addiction that's going to bring about sexual dysfunction for him the rest of his teen years but no matter how porn is viewed the most widespread and problematic concept that becomes a shadow of the real thing is intimacy to better understand this aspect specifically we sat down with jason van ruler a licensed professional counselor Okay. Yep. So my name is Jason Van Ruler. Uh, I'm a therapist, uh, but I'm also a father, um, husband. I've got three kiddos. Uh, what I do as part of my practice is I work a lot with leaders um, and also with couples. Uh, and so that is a practice where I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but also across the U.S. So I travel a lot to do workshops and intensives. Um, and really my goal is just help people to look at the difficult places in their life and to change their relationship with them and move forward. From Jason's experience talking with couples, porn can start out as a small habit, but then eventually begins to replace real intimacy. 
Well, I mean, it, it really simulates having an intimate relationship with someone where you're connected, not only physically, but emotionally. And so it's a way to kind of get to that outcome and have that release and, and get to that place without having any sort of relationship. And the truth is relationships are hard, right? We all know that I'm, I'm married, I've been married for a while. It's not always easy to be married. Um, and so what happens if we're not careful is we begin to settle for that. And so that's why pornography becomes really important. I think it's grown a lot in recent years because now we have people who don't even have role models to have healthy relationships. They're literally just flying blind. And so they don't think they're settling. They just think that's all there is. And so when we believe that, it becomes a replacement for something we're actually called to. As we established in the last episode, porn is getting introduced to younger and younger audiences. When you grow up with porn, somewhere along the way, you get this idea that what you see is a healthy baseline for sex. That's a terrible idea, right? I mean, and the problem is, is that what you're watching isn't realistic. Um, and what you're watching is not actually intimacy, right? So we're, we're not even watching the thing that we're telling ourselves we're watching. We're just watching two people doing a job. And so when we grow up on that, we have expectations that are really not accurate for a healthy relationship. Um, and we also see and try things that are not helpful or healthy for either person. And so that as an education is really shallow uh, because at the end of the day, there isn't love and intimacy there. It's just an act. And so the more that we lean into that, the less we lean into an actual relationship with someone. And we just keep being more dependent on pornography. The expectations that form from childhood porn consumption carry over into adolescence and then into adulthood, creating what can become a harmful basis for what's normal in a relationship. It's very destructive that way uh, because we have expectations not only about how we're supposed to experience sex and what that's supposed to look like and what successful or healthy sex is, but we also have really tough expectations about frequency. So I will work sometimes with a younger couple who's relied exclusively on pornography coming into marriage and they will have expectations that I'm not sure who could meet nor should they meet. And so it sets us up for needing a new education because the problem is, is that's not real. And so kiddos carry that. And I think also if we're just even single and we're looking at that or we're married and we're looking at that, it begins to become normal in our mind. And that's what we ask our person to do, regardless of how that honors them or our faith. Christian media tends to make neat, sterile content wrapped in a pretty bow. Too often we shy away from the real, the uncomfortable, and the disquieting. At Compel Studio, we don't believe that sweeping these subjects under the rug is helping. We're creating content that doesn't avoid these tough subjects, but leans into them, exposing darkness and discussing things that we desperately need to. In scripture, we see Jesus boldly confronting uncomfortable topics. His words provoke and challenge the status quo, and we believe it's time for content made by Jesus' followers to do the same. If you believe that too, you can join us and sign up for updates on all our future releases by going to compel.studio. From the outside world's perspective, Josh has reached the height of his success. He's won the awards. He's made the money. He's in the industry's biggest movies. And yet he couldn't feel more alone. We've covered some heavy things in this podcast series so far, but now we're going to discuss the darkest part of Josh's career. We invited Jason Van Ruler to fly down to Dallas to talk with Josh about this period of his career. The following is that conversation. You know, I had fraternity brothers and, you know, specifically my mom, as they would reach out to me, we would have, you know, we would have a, a, a good conversation, we'd catch up, and then it would always get to, well, how long are you going to keep doing this? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, well... 
I think that you're better than this and you can do whatever you wanted. You're smart, talented. And I think that if you put your energy into something else, you would be successful. And I know that this has been like a long, hard journey of you being here, but I think there's, there's more for you than what you have today. And you hear that, you had two choices. You either yeah, say, I mean, and I couldn't agree more. Right. But what made that hard to receive? Because that's like a beautiful thing to say to somebody. And I think it's true about you. But what made it so difficult to receive it in that moment? Because I didn't believe it was true. And I think it was like probably my multifaceted where it was like I, I couldn't see that being true. And honestly, I wasn't probably willing to do the work because I like I probably couldn't even like conceptualize the pain that would come with having to walk through the work to get to where I could be in a, in a healthy place. So if what they said is true, then that means I've got to do something yeah. and the doing something scares me and yeah. it's going to be really hard and really painful. And so it's easier for that not to be true. Yeah. So my, my choice was any and everyone that would present that to me, I pushed them away and I stopped answering my mom's calls stop answering her text messages, um, unfriended people on you know Facebook. Then I was in a space where truly isolated. And that was probably like the last like year of me being in the industry, which ironically was you know the most success from the outside looking in. The day that I found out that I won Performer of the Year, it was it's a strange word to use, but I think it makes the most sense to me, but it was like a, a killjoy. You think that you want something so bad because you believe that if you had that thing, it would make you feel like you're on top of the world. Like people that want to be married and like, you know, like, well, if, you know, if, if I could find someone and, you know, get married and, and do all this stuff, or even if someone just like wants a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or they like stuck in this season of singleness or someone that wanted to be rich or someone that wanted to have a car, it's like, not that desiring things are bad or accomplishments are bad, but if you believe that if you do this thing or if you had this thing that all your problems are just going to melt away. And I really believed if I won that award, as weird as it sounds, if I won that award, it would be comparable to hearing my dad say, I'm proud of you. Because in this world, we're searching for what we don't have. We're searching for the affirmation. We're searching for the pat on the back. We're searching for the feeling that we're good enough. And for some reason for me, if I could become the best at something, it would make me feel like I was worth something. And it didn't work. And that high that I thought I was going to feel was actually one of the deepest, darkest lows I've ever experienced in my life.
I didn't go to the show. Um, when you win Performer of the Year, it's not what like you did last week. You know, like it, you're you're winning an award based on a body of work that transpired over the last year, and I would say, as a performer, my last year I was in the industry on the straight side of things. The last year I was in, in the industry, I was the best I'd ever been. Um, probably because I was the most disconnected from reality I had ever been. I was able to completely disassociate myself, that person, like objectify them, objectify myself. started leaning into like doing things that I didn't normally do, saying things I didn't normally say. And then just being where I was at that time period, finding out that I won Performer of the Year. It was almost like a sick joke. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's where I was. And then I started thinking about self-harm and- um, What prompted that? I mean, did you just feel like there was just so much struggle in, I'm so alone, I'm so isolated, unhappy, maybe this is an option or, or what was really the catalyst for you to go down that road? I was tracking, like, there, were, there were goals that I had. I love like, you know, three week goals, six week goals, six month goals, nine month goals, like so on and so on. but. I was tracking like when when I made a million dollars. Like I was tracking that in a notebook. Like okay, when when I eclipsed a million dollars earned, I thought that there was going to be something like in me that shifted for some reason. I thought when when that extra comma was a reality that there was something that was going to shift in me. And then it didn't happen. And then the award was another thing that didn't happen. And there were just like a few things in my life. And when those things didn't happen, I started thinking like, okay, well, what else is important to me? And it's like, if you go back to, you know, sixth, seventh grade, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> it's like, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like, I, I would say a dad. is what I wanted to be. Yeah. And um, like that feeling impossible, like sure I could get I could get someone pregnant, but I had lost the capacity to be a father because how could someone be a father when they lived the life that I've lived? And I've never even seen it done or experienced it. And now I've been, you know, I've, I've invalidated myself, disqualified myself from it. I'll never be married. To, to anyone that's going to value me. Like, everything that I hoped for in my life. Is that realization yeah. of, you know, the things I dreamt of as a kid, yeah. and, and really the fantasy I had that I was trying to build yeah. is now impossible, yeah, exactly. or at least it feels impossible. I'm walking through the Bellagio and like people are, you know, strangely like stopping me and asking me for, for autographs or to take pictures and uh, which is so weird in retrospect. Um, 
but like that being true and then you know winning awards making money like doing all the stuff mm-hmm. that I thought you know but bef- like way before being in that industry it's like if my life looked like that I would be happy and not being happy while having those things and being as successful as I could be in the industry has had success you know as uh, you know an actor and as a director like having success in both places like well now what what's left right yeah so those are when the thoughts started to creep in and then that became you know like going to set like I could do my job no problem like I never like struggled doing that but um, I found myself thinking that I couldn't and then I started like okay well do I need like because like in, on, on the straight side of the industry, like using Caverjack was a big no-no. It's almost like, you know, Mark McGuire using steroids to home runs. It's like Viagra and, you know, and all, and all the like these traditional, allowed, these, these are is, okay. This is the pilot is now you know, allowed, like, yes. but because the Caverjack is like, you know, you, you can't lose when you, you know, that's like the, the contra code, you know, like it's the, you know, cause you, you inject it and you know, it, it traps blood into your penis and it's going to be, you know, a wreck for four Guaranteed hours. Guaranteed to work. No matter what, it's literally for paraplegic people so they can be intimate with their significant other, you know? So it's like, it's built for that. So I started thinking like, do I need to use that? Like, is this enough? Can I do it? And like all these like mental games and, just like really started like dreading anytime I was on set and started like turning work down and I started uh, like asking for more money when I would work and I would still get it which was frustrating I was like I was like maybe if I ask for too much trying to actively sabotage myself here and it it just keeps working yeah Yeah. Yeah, it's like what like how can I like do something and just be done with this? Like, okay. because I'm starting so to like, kind of that escapism, right? Of like, yeah. I'll, I'll do one last job and then yeah. I'm out. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then around that time I, I was like really trying to like stack cash, like, because I just didn't know what else to do. So I was like both, I was also like on like every steroid under the sun, HGH, Anavar, like all the stuff. So trying to be like as jacked as I could, like trying like to to look like I was okay in every way possible, financially, all the stuff. I would get invited, it's like, hey, we'll pay you a few thousand dollars to do this like cocktail party and you know, you'll you'll be in your underwear, you know, bartending. It's like whatever, it's two hours for, you know, five, six grand, whatever. And I started doing stuff like that every once in a while. But most of the people that did that, they were in like, just like a, a different crowd. And um, there was um, this person that, um, I guess made a, an email introduction to this guy who reached out to me. And they were like, well, we have these parties in Paris. And um, if you come, you know, so you know, we'll give you ten thousand to come out, and it'll be you know a, a few, a few more, based on like what happens when we get out there. And I was like, right, whatever, you know, it's like it's money, Paris at this like, point, whatever. And uh, long story really short, I I get out there. There's drinks. There's lots of wine. There's these like poppers or whatever, and um, I end up in a place where I feel like. I'm, I know that I'm drunk, but also like, I feel like I'm 
not like really in control of my body. Like I've, I feel like I've, I've done like ecstasy and like mushrooms and stuff before, but like it was something different than that. I almost felt like I was um, almost like I couldn't move my limbs. And um, I just remember one of the guys there, like essentially getting on top of me and raping me. And, um, and like initially I just felt like, well, this was just part of me putting myself in this place. And, you know, there, there was a, there was a pile of money at the end of it. I put myself in that place. Honestly, I felt very similar to the first time, eerily, actually, I've never really thought about this, but um, eerily similar to the first time that I did my first movie. I feel like that happened, and all of a sudden, like, I was, like, at the airport on a pretty, like, long plane ride, like, back to LAX, like, feeling dirty. Like, there was, like, residue from, like, the lube, like, on me. But like it was almost like it f I felt dirty in a way that I couldn't wash off. There's this uh, there's this scene in Redeeming Love where she has gone back to like prostituting or whatever, and then she's in this river and she's like washing off her body with rocks and she's like scrubbing her skin to the point where she's bleeding. It's like man, I could like really resonate with that because the way that you feel it's it's both tangible and there's like nothing that you can physically do about it. So you're just stuck. Yeah. Feeling that, knowing that, and then also feeling <clears throat> like you're out of control. Right. That would be the worst. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you fly back after that experience and what you're telling yourself is, Yeah. I signed up for this in some way, sure. right? I, I should have known or I should have expected that something like this could happen. And now yeah. I've got that feeling again that I maybe even haven't had in a long time, but, yeah. but now I've got this feeling and again, I'm stuck. Yeah, just really didn't know like how to like feel and didn't tell anyone that. That was not, that was not, I didn't share that with anyone. Um, and then just like went back to doing what I was doing and it was only like a few months. And like around that time was when, you know, I'd, I'd won Performer of the Year and just like having like these expectations of like continuing to do stuff. And I'm just tired. And pretty often, like if you were a good looking guy that was in the straight side of the industry, like gay companies would reach out to you often and they would say, you know, name your price. And I, I feel like because that happened, and I'm like opening my my emails and like seeing those like, well, you know, if instead of working 25 or 30 times a month, if you did gay scenes, like it would just be like one or two a month and you would make, you know, the same amount of money. For me, I was just like, well, this has already happened. Like it wasn't the end of the world. Like I hated it, but like. It happened. I survived. Yeah. Here I am. I don't really want to work anymore. Yeah. But this is a way to make money and not really have to work. Yeah. And then really, and also believing like, well, what else can I do? My only value is to sell myself for sex. So I might as well make good money if I'm going to do it. Right. And if I'm already used to doing the thing and I don't like it, but I don't like the other <clears throat> thing either. Yeah. It's just one more step. Yeah. And so, you know, it was pretty quickly I like made that decision that I was going to do that. And I didn't tell anyone, literally told no one, just randomly made the decision. I did it. 
Um, I reached out to a company that offered the most money. I'm like, sure, I'll do it. They, of course, like put out a, a bunch of PR about it. And then I had like people who knew me. It's like, dude, why did you? What's going on? Why did you do that? And I didn't really have an answer. What did you feel? So you didn't have an answer, but what, what was I felt the feeling? A, I felt shame. I, I, for some reason, did, I don't know. I don't know what I expected, how they reacted, but like some people were like, oh, like if, if you're gay, that's amazing. Good for you. I'm like, no, I'm not. They're like, well, why'd you do that? I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. And then I tried to explain like, well, you know, I'm, I only have to work like, you know, once or twice a month. It's financial, it's like, but let me, you know, explain <clears throat> the numbers. And they're like, well, why would you do that? Like you're literally the most popular person in the porn industry. Like, what? Like, explain that to me. And especially like some of the some of like some of the younger guys are like, I want to be you. Like, what? Like, why? Why would you? Why are do you that? giving that up to do this? Yeah, especially if you're saying that you're you're if like if you're saying you're gay, it makes sense. If you're not, this does not make sense to me. I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense to me either. It's kind of where I was at. At this time, so this is like, you know, 2012, 2013. So this time in the industry, like, it's not what it is today. Like, if you did, like, as a guy, if you did gay porn, you cannot do straight porn. Like, you're absolutely banished from the straight industry because the girls will not work with you. That conversation with friends where you couldn't really explain it, really parallels the conversation you had with mom when you started. Wow. Right? Um, you, you're cut for more. You've got so much more potential. Every You could have anything you want. Yeah. And you kind of can't explain why you're doing it, but you feel like you have to. Yeah. And and now you win, and you're as successful as you've ever been, and these people are calling you, and they're like, why are you doing this? You're, you have so much potential. Yeah. And you're like, because I have to. Yeah. Because now I'm in a position where I have to do this, and yeah. so I'm going to do it. I mean, I saw some like really dark things happen on on sets, on you know, like on the the straight sets, like where you know there were people that would show up drunk and get sent home. People show up that you know would have like herpes breakouts and be sent home and like try to like should, can I get you know makeup to cover it up so that I can work because if I don't work, like someone's going to like be mad at me, AKA someone's going to hurt me if, if I don't come home with a check. Cause a lot, there's a lot of relationships like that with, with girls and who they think to be their boyfriend, who is actually their pimp that's trafficking them. Um, a lot of dark stuff, but not, nothing as dark as the, the depravity really on, on a gay porn set where, you know, at, Pretty much everyone I, I met outside of like one or two people that I had any kind of interaction with would, would say that they're straight. Like some in a, a relationship with a girl and everyone's using Caverjack where, you know, you're someone on sets injecting a needle into you, you know, not medical professionals, just, you know, someone that's So we a can PA. do this. Um, it's just like, you know, you're, you're doing that and then you're you're doing these scenes, and then at the end, um, it's like two guys 
in like separate corners watching straight porn, masturbating so that they could climax. And then when they would get close to climax, they would run back on set and do it on one another. I mean, it only takes one time of experiencing something like that. It's like, this is not, this is so much worse than I thought it would be. And that made me feel dirty. That feeling you'd had before where yeah. I can't wash this off. Yeah, well, I mean, this was like beyond that even. Where it was like, I'm, I'm number one, I'm, I'm, I'm forcing myself to do something that is contradictory to like my attraction, but it doesn't matter to me because just sex in general is so like benign to me that it doesn't matter but it still had some kind of impact on me that I couldn't explain. It's almost like the way that I felt, I, I still have a hard time like articulating. Yeah, what do you feel now as you talk about it? I mean, as you tell <clears> a little awkward, you know, a little awkward, almost like trying to think of like me sitting there, like what was, like what was in my head? And it's like, gosh, it, it almost makes me sad. Oh, it does make me sad. Just thinking like how many people are in that space right now, still doing that. And the fact that I did that, because um, I did that you know, about 30 times, I did that. Um, and it, was, it pretty much always ended in that way. <clears throat> in the last, the last one I did, I was in Atlanta and I was on my way back. Um, and as I, was, as I was flying back from, from Atlanta, I was like, okay, I'm done. I can't, I can't do that anymore. So I'm like, I'm going to take my life. Got back. Um, already had a bottle of, I think it was like hydrocodone or something like that and set them on the counter. And I was like, I'm, you know, I could probably swallow like X amount. I put them in the in the groupings, and um, I had slacks on. I could like feel the check in my pocket, and like for some reason it like made sense in my head to like go and deposit it. I, I was thinking this money's not like at least gonna make its way into the bank. Like I didn't do that for nothing, you know. Um, and then, yeah, like, I, I don't know how it works, but I assume if I'm dead, the money will go to my next of kin. So thinking, well, at least I'll, I'll put that money in there. And in addition to that, I'm scared. You know, I'm like, I, like, I, I, I wanted to harm myself because I wanted the hurt to go away. I didn't want to harm myself because I wanted to harm myself. So that's, that's where I was. I walked through the parking garage and then across the street was a chase. Normally I would just drop the check in the drop box or do the ATM because the memo on the check would always say something grotesque. You know, it would be a title of a movie or, you know. Um, I think half of the time, probably more than half of the time, like directors would write something there 
being antagonistic. And then, you know, also, like, you know, a memo on the check is for, you know, documentation purposes, you know. But, I mean, it sucked to deposit those. So I was like, I don't want to hand that to a person. But on this day, I was thinking, well, if I hand this to a person and they look me in the eye and, you know, reaffirm the things that I thought about myself, that I was disgusting, that it was, you know, pathetic, that I was doing these things for money, you know, at, at least if she would give me a, a condescending smirk, that would be enough ammunition for me to do what I wanted to do. And instead I walk in and slide the check across the counter and, you know, I, I had to be shaking, you know, um, definitely like had lost, like loss of color, just, um, so I didn't like feel good, scared. I can only imagine like I had like, this like distant look of someone who was not okay. And then I'm waiting for her to say what I expect her to say. And instead she looks at me and says, Joshua, are you okay? Joshua, is there something I can do for you? That's all, I mean, it, it, shocked, it shocked me, but honestly, the first time she said it, I was like, who are you talking to? Like, I hadn't heard my name in so long, I didn't even recognize my own name. And then I realized she was talking to me. I think it went from like shock to shatter. And then like I felt, I felt the emotions I was suppressing. And then I started thinking the things I should have been thinking. Like, man, my mom loves me. Like, what, why would I not even answer her texts or calls? The reason was shame and guilt. I'm ashamed of the way that I'm living. I feel guilty. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what I'm doing is not honoring her. It's not something that I'm not respecting myself. I think it like shattered this plausible reality that I created to protect myself from myself. And when I guess I, I felt those feelings. And the first thing I thought of was to, to run and to run to call my mom. Because that, well, that's what should be second nature. I'm hurting. I need to tell someone who loves me. <clears throat> I hustled back home pretty aggressively and had a little bit of a breakdown when I got there because I'm just like having a flood of emotions. Like I'm seeing all these awards that I've won. I'm seeing pills that are on the counter. I feel like the filth on me.
I was just hurting. And called my mom. Next time on Unmentionable. I'm doing something else. I have covered up both of my tattoos, deleted all my social media that I could, shaved my head. I'm going to disguise myself as myself. I mean, it was this Groundhog's Day of people would find out, they would ask questions. Constantly having to explain myself was exhausting. So like, how do I bury it? Unmentionable was written by Lee Shelton, Jacob Jolly, and Tyler McKinney. Directed and hosted by Lee Shelton. Art direction by Jacob Jolly. Kathleen Terrell is our production executive. Edited by Tyler McKinney and assisted by Jacob Jolly. Original score and composition by Tyler McKinney. Special thanks to our guests, Helen Taylor and Jason Van Ruler. This episode wouldn't have happened without Alex Lewis, Craig Dennison, Tim Ross, Justin Motes, and of course, Joshua Broom. Thank you for trusting us with your story. Unmentionable is a production of Compel Studio.